If you have your Bibles, please open to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 37. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 37. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 37. Let's begin by reading the word of God. And when one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, he recognized that he had answered them well and asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered thoughtfully, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would dare to ask him any more questions. And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself called him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word and the opportunity for us to study it, to meditate upon it. And I pray, Lord, that you can help us internalize it. Lord, allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and minds so that we can have the mind of Christ and in all that we do, that our lives would be honoring to you. Thank you for this opportunity that we have. Allow us to be attentive tonight. In your son's name I pray, amen. There are a lot of good questions that are asked throughout the world. And when we look at the life of Jesus, that's actually a way for him to draw out the hearts of individuals. Sometimes you'll ask them, have you heard this, or did you know this, or what did you mean by these things? And Jesus does this as a way to get people to reveal what's in their own hearts, Oftentimes, the way that people respond, their initial response to things, can tell you what's not just only on their mind, but what's, what they're thinking about as well. And we see sometimes in the life of Jesus that people ask him questions. Sometimes they ask questions like, how do we get into the kingdom of God, and what does it mean to be saved, and what is truth? And I think in this instance here in the text, a question that is asked is a really profound question. What is the most important command? Because 
in this question that's asked by even those, these scribes, he tells them what it takes to have a right relationship with the Lord. In, the, in this book of Mark, at this point, Mark chapter 12, I mean, we've been, we haven't been here in a while, and, uh, but just to kind of give us a big picture of what Mark is about, or at least this chapter, this is Passion Week. Uh, this is, the, this, is the, this week here, and it's really the last life of, of Jesus' earthly ministry. Monday was the, uh, the triumphal entry where he comes into the temple and people were saying to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. They were worshiping him, but at the end of the week, you find that they have abandoned Jesus Christ. So that was Monday, and then when Tuesday, Jesus goes and he cleanses the temple. He looks at the people, he sees all the money changers and all the people that are just making a mockery of the temple. He flips the tables over and he takes whips to whip everyone out and he cleanses the temple and the religious leader are offended by what he is doing. At this point in the text, this is Wednesday and he's here debating against different religious leaders. He debated against the Sadducees, earlier about the resurrection, he debated against the Pharisees, and now he's going to debate against the scribes. And it's important to know that in, when we look at these, this section tonight, that there's a question that we need to ask. What is the greatest commandment? Because this is a question that we need to answer in order to get Jesus Christ right. In order to obtain salvation, we need to answer the question, what is the foremost commandment? So for us to just kind of hang our thoughts for this evening, if you want to be a follower of Christ, these are two things that you need to get right. You first need to get God's word right. And second, you need to get Jesus' deity right. So the first thing that you and I need to get right, if we want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, is this, is that you need to get God's word right. Uh, we see this in verse 28 to 34. Let's look at verse 28. And when one of the scribes came and heard, him, heard them arguing, he recognized that he had answered them well and asked them, what is the foremost commandment? We see here that of the scribes, this is a group of individuals that in our modern day, would be a mix between a lawyer and a seminary professor. Uh, they know all the laws, and part of it, part of reason why they're expert in the law is that they copy the law over and over again. But not only that, but these are individuals that, because of their copying, they also copy down all of the, the test cases. They see how one particular ruler uh, govern in a particular way, and they write those things down, or how one, another priest or another rabbi uh, made a verdict a certain, in a certain way. He copies all of those things down to the point where they have the biblical text as well as all these extra biblical texts and how they govern the people based on the word of God. So these scribes here, they, they know God's word really well, but there's still something that they're lacking. They don't really believe in the word of God. This is the third group of people that is trying to challenge Christ and one of the scribes here decide to step up to the plate. He wanted to challenge Jesus Christ. But there is something unique about this one particular scribe here. 
because he came to them and he heard them. He recognized, and it says that here, he acknowledged that Jesus answered them well. <clears throat> this means that this person was impressed. He heard how Jesus responded to all these different religious leaders, and he's curious, but he also wants to imprison Jesus. He wants to trap him, because if he could get Jesus to somehow acknowledge that, that you don't need to believe in the Torah or believe in God or God's word, then they can get the religious crowd to go against him. So he asked this one question, and I think it's a really profound question that reveals the heart of the Pharisees and the religious leaders at the time, but also reveals truth at the same time. How Jesus answers this question is what we all need to answer as well. He asks this question, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now in the Old Testament, the, uh, there are 613 commandments, and that's true, but the religious leaders at the time decided to interpret the 613 in a, in a very unique way. We'll say that he, they essentially did a, they weren't really using hermeneutics, but they're trying to allegorize the text and try to draw meaning that isn't there. And what I mean by that is like they said, there's 613 commandments, but you know what? There's also 613 Hebrew words in the 10 commandments. So they prioritize it. And it's true, there are 613 Hebrew words in the 10 commandments in the original language. And then they decided to try and bend this a little more. They said of the three, 613, 248 of them are positive commandments, and 365 of them are negative. And the reason they said positive is because they're, at the time they thought 248 is how many, they, this is again this is what they thought at the time, they thought there were 248 parts in a human body, from the fingers to the teeth and eyes. They counted and they thought there's 248 and then 365 is obviously how many days in a year. So they thought all these things are, are, are part of why the Bible has 613 commandments. And even amongst the 613th commandments, again, you can see how they're bending and misinterpreting Scripture, they decided there are some commandments that are heavier and more weightier than others. Now, the irony of all of this is that the religious leaders majored on the minors and minored on the majors. They're really good at doing the things that are actually easily attained or able to do, like not work on the Sabbath, um, uh, certain tax laws, things that they like to do, these religious leaders were willing to abide by. But there are certain commandments about like showing compassion or showing mercy or forgiveness. These are things that are really difficult for the religious leaders. They don't see their own hypocrisy. So they, so they don't see their own hypocrisy. So they decide to challenge Jesus. In their own system, there are some that are foremost, and there's some that are lesser. And he, they asked Jesus, which one do you think is the foremost commandment? Which one do you think is the most important commandment? Again, they're trying to trap Jesus to get him to say something that would seem very anti-Moses. And they assumed that Jesus was going to say something that would get him in trouble. They tried to test Jesus. And they want to see what Jesus values the most. And they expect him to, to say some sort of external ritual Instead, we see that Jesus answers in the most profound way, yet very simple. Verse 19, Jesus answered, The foremost is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. 
this command that he draws from is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. He tells them, he uses that as the base of his answer. He said that, there is, that our God is one Lord. And he's telling them that this God that they all worship is one God. So again, this is a counter to even the Romans at the time who believed in a pantheon of God. So that narrows down who does Jesus truly worship. Like, okay, or who is Jesus? He's saying that there is only one God that you worship. And for us, that means that there is a, there's a Trinitarian um, flavor throughout this entire section because we see Jesus talking here. You see, you see that there's only one God <clears throat> and that there's also the Holy Spirit giving David, the command uh, of Psalm 110 later on in the end of the passage here. But here, it's like there's only one God. And the command is that you shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And these things are all connected to each other. But you notice in verse 30, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. This word love here is... It's not like the friendship type of love. Rather, this is a choice love. It's the word agape love. It's a love that has action to it. This word should be familiar to us because in John 3, 16, it said, For God so loved the world. And there's a result of that, that God loved the world and there was an action to it. God didn't just love the world and just left it at that. It wasn't just some emotional thing that he had towards human beings. There was a love that he had is a choice love, and that led to a particular action. And he says here, Jesus, you need to love your God with all your heart. That means that for us as believers, if we want to be a follower of God, we need to choose the Lord. To, we, choose the, we, have to, we have to agape this love for him that leads to obedience. It's not to say that we just love God and that's just the way it is, because that's not how God wants us to love. Our love for the Lord should lead us to a life of service to him. And it says, with all of your heart. That means, and we look at this, with love with all your heart. This word heart here is not, I mean, we think of it in terms of emotions, and that is part of it here. But at that time, it's, thinking, it's more like your, the core of your identity, your control system, your personality, even in the way that you act, in your personality, people can tell that you love the Lord. And that's, what God, and that's what our Lord is saying, that in the way that you love the Lord, you love him with all of your heart, all that you are, your control systems, the thing that you think, your core identity is centered around our Lord. And there should be no surprise in the New Testament. We see this quite often, where in the book of Philippians, it tells that our identity is in Christ, that for us, our chief identity is not based on what we do in this life, but our chief identity is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. So with our heart and with all our soul, this word soul here, this is actually more the word for emotions. It's, it's the thing that is the, how you feel about things. So even the way that we feel, it's aligned to how what God feels about things. We love the things that God loves and we hate the things that God hates. And it continues on, and with all of your mind, this is your, your reasoning, your thoughts, your will, and your purpose, and also say with all of your strength. I think this is the most easy to understand here. It's just your physical ability. And what Jesus is trying to say is that with every part of you, 
you need to be devoted to the Lord. Every part of you needs to be devoted to, to the Lord. Our love can't be lukewarm in any way. The, the, the chief commandment is that we love this God with this love that propels us to change the way that we are in every sense of the word. And it says this from, and this is with all. This is in the, in the Greek, this is the idea of, it means the out of, it comes out of you. This means it's not about some sort of external thing that you do. Rather, because you love the Lord internally, it should naturally bleed out in so many different ways of your life. In the way that you think, in the way that you feel, in the way that you work, in the way that you, in every part of you, because of a changed heart, you would want to do all of these things. Then you ask yourself, and I think all of us you ask yourself, is this true about us? Do we have the love of God as our, do we love God more than anything in this world? And the evidence of that is how we live our life. We can easily be like this, these religious leaders that think that as long as I do all of these external things for the church, then that must mean that I am a religious person. Or that I'm doing all of these things, and that must mean I truly love the Lord. Whatever service that you think you're doing for him, and maybe other people can affirm the fact that you serve him, if unless, you have a, unless that's coming from a changed heart, a heart that's devoted to him, the Lord is not pleased with it. What if I don't? What if I don't have this? Well, that means you have to ask the Lord to change your heart. This all-encompassing love can only happen if you have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. If you understand who this God is, if you understand what was done so that you have a right relationship with him, the natural reaction, the initial natural reaction is that we love him. It's not doing something for him as the first step. It's that our affections change. We love him, and that's why we want to honor him and have him first, and have him preeminent in our own life. How can we not give Christ our all after what he has done for us? Notice, he says the second is this, and then this is, implies that you did the first one, and it said that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And this love here, you said you shall love your neighbor. It's the same love that is used in verse 30. The love that you have for your neighbor is supposed to be something that you act upon. You can't say that you love the one true God and yet have no love for those around you. The result of loving God first is that you will love your neighbors. You will love those around you. <clears throat> Now, the religious leaders were challenging Jesus. They would ask him, well, who is my neighbor? Because the Jewish mind is thinking, it's probably just the people of the same ethnicity. And we know the, product, uh, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan tells us that, no, it's not that. It's, it's everyone around you, from the most despicable person to the one that you love the most in this life, all the people around you whether it's your coworkers, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your neighbor, your little neighbor, the one that lives next to you, whether it's your siblings, <clears throat> whoever it is, you need to love your neighbor with this active love the way that you love yourself. Now, it's easy, and in fact, liberal theologians will take this first, like, you need to love your neighbor as yourself, as if that we need some sort of self-love in our life. 
this verse implies that you already do this. Like, it's not something that you command, that you need a commandment to do. You naturally do this. I think for all of us, when we woke up this morning, the first thing we try to do is to take care of ourselves, whether it's brushing your teeth or washing your face. You do these things because you, take, you want to take care of yourself. You go and you find breakfast. Sometimes you, you could be going to Uber or you, uh, and Uber eat something or you have something in the fridge you want to eat. You find the best things, the thing that you want, and then you go after it. And this is natural for all of us to want to take care of ourselves. But what Jesus is saying and even what the Old Testament was saying is that the way that you love yourself, the way that you treat yourself, the way that you have all these details about what you would do for yourself, that is the kind of love that you need to show other people. And if you are like me, you know you fail in this way. You know, sometimes we think, I want people to pray for me, but yet we aren't thinking about who we can be praying for. I want people to minister to me, to minister to my needs, but when it's the other way around, we aren't willing to minister to other people. I want people to talk to us in a particular way, but yet when it comes to us and the way that we talk to other people is often not the way that we want to be spoken to. I want to be loved the way, a certain way, but when, it's, when it comes to us showing that love to other people, we fail to do it. This is that golden rule that you treat other people the way that you want to be treated. And the reason why it's hard for us is because we love ourselves more than we love God. Your relationship with other people is directly tied to how you love the Lord. It's not that you love God and then your love for other people diminishes. It's that the way that you love God, the way that you understand how much grace that he's shown you, how much love he's shown you, how much he cares for you, despite all the times we fail, that's how we're supposed to treat other people because we get to experience that love of God that should drive us to be willing to love other people. Yet, we fail so often. And the reality is that if you find yourself having a hard time loving people, and this isn't just speaking of people in the church, but just people in general, there is a high possibility that you don't really love God. If you find yourself just struggling with treating people the way that you want to be treated, it's probably because you're looking at yourself instead of looking to the Lord. Oftentimes when there's conflict between people, we spend so much time looking at how we feel about the circumstance or what other have, people have failed and how they fail instead of just looking to Christ. Because when you look at Christ, when you look to the Lord, you'll see how much you have failed, but yet God is just still so gracious and still so kind and still so loving towards you. First John chapter 4, verses 19. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love a God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, the one who loves God should love his brother also. As believers, we need to, or even maybe I should rephrase this way, as professing believers, there should be a natural result to want to love people the way that Christ loves them because that's how we were loved by the Lord. 
when you think about 1 Corinthians 13, when you see all of 1 Corinthians, what perfect love is like, we oftentimes fail, and, we, and when people, and when, and when that happens, it shows that we don't understand how much love is shown to us. Look at what 1 Corinthians 13 has to say about what love is like. It says here, love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, it's not brag, it's not puffed up, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it's not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice, rejoices with truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. When we look at our love for other people, we find that we fail. And when we fail, we're not supposed to look at what's wrong with me or the other person. We need to look to the Lord, see how he has loved us, and that should compel us to want to continue to love those that are not, they're not easy to love. Whatever the neighbor is, we should be, whoever it is in your life, when you see how difficult it is to love that person, you must remember that we are not easily loved. We're not, it's not easy to love us as well, but yet God, knowing all our faults, knowing how much we sin against him, choose to love us by bringing us to him and continue to sustain us in this life. Notice the results of this. The scribe said to him, verse 32, right teacher. It's, it's funny because in the English it doesn't really capture the idea of what he's feeling. It's, it's more like he was surprised, but he, he, you know, it's more like he was impressed. He was impressed with Jesus' response. He said, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one besides him. And, I love, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love a neighbor as, as himself is much more than all burnt offering and sacrifices. And it's kind of funny because his response kind of throws the entire religious system under the bus. He's like, you got the answer right. It's better than all the offerings and all the sacrifices. And you can just imagine all the, like, like all the Pharisees and all those Sadducees who look at like, hey, man, same team. We're still being the same team here. We'll go after this guy. Why are you going after us? Um, but at the same time, we understand that this guy here, though he, he acknowledges that Jesus said the right thing, he isn't willing to let those things go. You have to understand just in the context, they're in the temple here. They probably were able to smell the sacrifices. I mean, they were not far from where the things were being burnt. He's saying all of those things that you smell, those things are useless. All the religious systems is useless. Because what God cares most is our love for him and our love for other people. Our love for God and our love for other people is more important than the ministry that we do here. It's very easy to think that because I do so much for the church that I don't need to work on my, on my character that I don't need to work on my, on my understanding of who the Lord is. We try to cover our, our, our shortcomings with ministry because we think that is what, God, what is pleasing to the Lord. But God doesn't care about what you do for him. I mean, the scribe understands it. He, even he understands that loving God and loving your neighbor, that is much more important than burnt offering and sacrifices. And if that's true, then we need to ask ourselves, why is it so hard to love other people? It is always because we 
have a diminished view of the Lord. We don't love God as we should because loving God and loving our neighbors, they run concurrently. You can't have one without the other. This is, again, to all people, people in the church and people outside the church. And, you know, in this last few weeks, we talked about evangelism and about what is so, why we should be a, a Bible study or an individual that loves missions is because if you truly love your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus Christ, then the best thing you can do is introduce them to Christ. When you think about the fact that someone came to you and was willing to share the gospel with you, someone who was willing to, 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 to fight their fears, to go and spend time with you, to share the gospel with you, that's the most loving thing that anyone can do for, to you and for you outside of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. The person who introduced you to our Savior, that person loved you enough to tell you the good news about Jesus Christ. And if you claim that you love your non-believing friends or your family and yet you do not and you have not or will not share the gospel with them, that tells me and you should tell yourself how much you truly love the Lord. Because if God wants his name to be made known throughout the world, then, that, then and if you truly love God and you want that to come to pass, then you need to be a faithful evangelist. You, you love your neighbor, then you tell them and warn them of the wrath that is to come. I think that's why we need to understand God's word right. That's how we can be a follower of Jesus Christ. We understand the greatest command is to love him and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Notice how Jesus concludes the scene. It said, and when Jesus saw that he had answered thoughtfully, some of your translations, I think NASB uses the word intelligently. And I think that's, I chuckled when I read that because it implies that every other religious leader at the time did not answer thoughtfully or intelligently. Um, it means that they were dumb. <laughs> and he said, you are not far from the kingdom. I thought no one would dare to ask him any more questions. Basically, Jesus was able to silence all the religious leaders. But what's actually very sad is this portion at the, toward the very end. It said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I can only hope that we see the scribe in heaven, but in the text, it's, un, it's uncertain. We don't know if this person was willing to give up all the religious system and and the reputation that he had of all these different religious leaders to follow Jesus Christ. But he says, he tells them that you're not far from the kingdom. This is a compliment in some ways. He's saying that you're, you're really close, but at the same time, it's also an appeal. He's begging this scribe to get to the kingdom of God because it's not good enough to be close to the kingdom of God. This man knows that it's not about external works but he seems to not be ready to accept it. He already answered that, has, that loving God and loving your neighbor is better than all of the religious systems. It's an internal and spiritual issue as opposed to an external physical issue. And I think this is something that for us that we need to warn ourselves. To be near to God in a sense of close to heaven is not close enough. To be near and not actually there is very dangerous. And I think it's especially true for a Bible-teaching church or Bible-preaching church to have so many people that are so close to the kingdom of God, 
They're banking on all the things that they've done for the Lord in the name of the Lord and their service to the Lord, but they're not devoted to him. There's no union that they have with God. There's no true love that they have for the Lord. And you can be so close from the kingdom, and this is where I hope for all of us that we do some heart check. Are you in the kingdom of God or are you close to the kingdom of God? Are you united with God or are you just close to Jesus Christ? My hope is that for all of us that we are not just the people that just do all these different religious things and in a nice environments and just close to the Lord. Rather, we are in union with God. So we need to get God's word right because it's not just knowing the word of God but knowing the author, knowing who he is, knowing God himself. And that's the only way we could be a follower of Jesus Christ is if we get God's word right. Not in terms of just interpretation, but that God's word changes your heart, changes your life, so that you love him with all your being. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, the first is that you need to get God's word right, and the second is that you need to get, God, get Jesus' deity right. You need to get Jesus' deity right. We'll see this in verse 35 to 37. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the Son of God? Now, he's, the time hasn't passed much here. I think in the context, he's just changing the audience here. He's talking to the people, and he's inviting everyone with this question. How is it that the scribes can say that the Christ is the Son of God? Earlier he was challenged, and throughout chapter 12, he was, people were challenging him. Now he's, he's giving a question for them to ponder on. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? And what, he's try, what Jesus is trying to get at here is that the scribes and the religious leaders, they have parts of Christ that is actually true. And this word Christ here is just the idea of Messiah. They, it's true what they're saying, that he is the Son of David, but in terms of understanding what that means... They've got it, uh, they, they got it wrong. That's why I think that some of these people are not far from the kingdom because they understand parts of what, uh, what, what Scripture has to say but not understand it completely. They didn't get the Messiah right. They assumed that the Messiah was just this earthly ruler that's just going to overthrow the Roman government and reign forever and ever. They never thought that this man, the son of David, is also going to be divine. Yes, it's right that he is a son of David. He's going to be in that line. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, the, the Davidic covenant, that there's going to be this eternal king that's going to rule. But they didn't realize that this person is going to be divine as well. This person must be from the line of David, but they miss his divinity. And how do we know that? Because for the next verse, <clears throat> David said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. This is a reference to Psalm 110, where David makes this messianic prophecy about who the eternal king and what he's going to be like. And it says here that David himself said, in the Holy Spirit. And again, this tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God. And the reason why David wrote what he wrote is because the Holy Spirit gave him revelation to let him know that his son, someone, someone of the sons down the line, is going to be the one that he's going to worship as well. And that everyone is going to bow to this, this child who will be his Lord. 
the one who created scripture is going to be the one that's going to reign uh, in the form of Jesus Christ. He's going to put, he's going to be at the right hand of the Father. So we see the, other, the, the, the Trinity being played out here in Psalm 110. It said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. His right hand is the idea of co-equals, deity here, this deity language. And he has, he's going to be divine. He is going to be someone that has authority. Now, in the Jewish mindset, it is impossible to fathom a child bowing down to the father. Or, sorry, a father bowing down to the child. It's, an, it's, it's unfathomable for a dad to go and worship their son. But yet this is what Jesus is saying here, that Jesus, he is going to be from the line of David. There's going to be this human aspect to him, but he is also going to be divine. This is what we call the, the hypostatic union, that God is truly and fully man, and he's also truly and fully God. The, now, the, the scribes here are really no different than from like the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons that think that Jesus is just only man or he's some unique individual. They get it wrong just like how the scribes got it wrong. And for us as Christians, we need to understand what makes Christianity unique is that we have to have a right view of Jesus. We have the right Christology. We know who Jesus Christ is because he's not just a unique man. He came in the form of uh, of a human being, but he is also divine. This is why he says in verse 32, David calls himself Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And again, this is saying if David is writing this, he's saying that his child is going to be somebody's worship. Either he is right in that that is truly the Messiah, that's not just a person that's going to be a savior, but he's, he is divine as well, or he's committing idolatry. Either David has got, got the right idea that Jesus that the Messiah that's coming out of his line is going to be someone that's more than just a king, more than just a savior in the political sense, but that he's, he is divine or he's worshiping a false god. So either David is an idolater or he's worshiping the right god. That's what this challenge is about. He's trying to get them to think, is David, and they all would acknowledge, whether you're Sadducee, Pharisee, whoever, they will all acknowledge that David is, is one of the unique characters of the Old Testament that they respect. They, they have to, they have to if, but if he is saying what he's truly saying, then they must either call him a true worshiper of God or he's an idolater. So it's a challenge for really the Pharisees and the religious leaders, even people at the time, to really consider and get Jesus right, get the Messiah right. It's not enough to say that the Messiah is a son of David but that this is the Lord and that they need to worship him. And the result of that is this, and the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Notice what's fascinating between this crowd here and that scribe. Both of them heard what Jesus had to say. And for the scribe, he was so close to the kingdom of God, yet was not there. And this, pers- this crowd here, they just enjoyed listening to him. The similarity between the two is that none of them repented. There's no evidence in this text here that would imply that these people repented and turned to the true Savior. It's just that they enjoyed listening to him. It could mean that these people saw how Jesus debated and handled these religious leaders, and they found him amusing. They thought, this guy is entertaining. This guy is very, very eloquent. This guy is an amazing teacher. 
and the religious leader were close, but the crowd were just amused by Jesus Christ. What about you? Sometimes I think, I think modern-day evangelicalism is fascinated by entertainment so much that they equate di- uh, like a very dynamic form of preaching as convicting. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you YouTube any prosperity preacher, if you YouTube any kind of false teacher, you'll notice that they're really good performers. They're very fun to listen to. And people are, would say things like, you know, they'll say something that just sounds religious and they'll get the whole crowd chanting and saying amen and there's going to be this, and there's like this loud uproar and cheers and applause. But what they have to say is nothing of substance. There are a crowd that just love to listen. And this is dangerous because it's just because you, just because you find something entertaining doesn't necessarily mean that you are listening to the right thing. The people here, they just enjoyed listening. That's, all they, that's how they viewed Jesus Christ. They just saw him as just amusing. They just saw him as entertaining. They didn't actually want to worship him. And for us as Christians, when we think about going to church, when we think about being anywhere, it should never be about, is this preacher entertaining? Or is this preacher fun to listen to? Rather, you should look in terms of the content of what they're saying. Does it make you want to worship the Lord? Because Jesus was trying to point people to Christ, uh, to himself, to the, to the one true God, and yet people missed the point. It isn't, entertainment isn't the faith here. And if you find yourself wanting to just go towards places that are just, or preachers that are more entertaining, then you find that you're not really worshiping the Lord. You're worshiping the individual or the, or the way that the speaker speaks and their skill sets and their oratory skills. We're not here as Christians to enjoy the preacher. This is a guy preaching right now. I'm telling you, it's not about me. Rather, it's about the word of God. It's about learning and knowing God. Jesus was trying to teach them scripture in hopes that they would repent, in hopes that they would love the Lord. And that's what all preachers try to do. They want to teach so that people can know the Lord, so they could get Jesus right, so they can mortify their own sin. No matter what the person is like, the personality or their level of preaching skill, we should always listen to the word of God as opposed to, oh, it's this preacher this week or that preacher another week or this preacher in that church or whatever. These things are not what Christians are supposed to be. We're not called to just enjoy listening to people. Rather, we're called to listen to the word of God and that should transform us to look more like Jesus Christ. So if you're here and all you care about is the entertainment value of preaching or anything like that, if you listen to podcasts only, you only listen to certain types of preaching because you find that they are good because of their skill, then that's not really the right motive. That's the wrong heart at heart motive. We should want to listen to God's word preached because we love the Lord. We're going to learn more about the Lord. And that's how you know if you are followed the Lord. If you get Jesus' deity right, you listen to the Lord, you listen to the Lord through his word and it should reveal to you more about him and should get, you should get Christ right no matter who's preaching. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to get first get God's word right and also you need to get Jesus' deity right because they're all connected. All of God's word, our triune God, breathed out this word for us so that we can know him and if we 
if we get God's word right, then chances are you get, the, you get Jesus right as well. And in every false religion, all, there's always going to be attack on God's word and the deity of Jesus Christ. That's always going to be connected. It's always going to be those two. Study any cult, you'll find that there's always attack one or the other. And really, if you attack one, you are attacking the other. So for us as Christians, if we, if we want to be a genuine follower of Christ, we need to make sure that we get God's word right, as well as get the deity of Christ right as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for helping us see that we first and foremost need a genuine love for you. The greatest and foremost commandment is that we love you with all our heart, mind, and souls, and then to go and love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we know we fall short on a daily basis in this uh, greatest commandments, and I ask that you can help us grow in our affections for each day as we look to your word, as we meditate on truth, that it doesn't make us legalists, it doesn't make us emotionalists, rather we are people that are sanctified by your word. Help us to be able to have a, have a greater love for you, and the more we see your word, the more you reveal to us how great of a God you are, may that compel us to love you more and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, help us get your deity right. In this day and age where there's so much people's opinions on who Christ is, may we look to your word to reach our conclusions. Lord, help us uh, have a treasure, treasure trove of all the passages in Scripture about your divinity, knowing that from the old to the new, you tell, you've, you've, you've revealed to us who your Messiah is, and we, may we get Jesus Christ right in our lives. Thank you for this opportunity for us to, to hear your word preached. In your son's name I pray. Amen.